it's the passage of Psalm 22. It's on page 505. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of, of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, and you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like, like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me out in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can, count on all, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my, soul from my, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Now please stand for the remaining of the, the psalm. I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard, and he cried to him. For from you, cries, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever, and the end of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kings... For kingships belong to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, and shall bow before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him, and shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks again, Drew, for reading our passage. What an encouraging psalm. My wife and I, she just said about 20 verses in, wow, I just feel super encouraged. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am looking forward to jumping into our psalm today. I hope you will keep your Bibles open. If you're just now joining us, though, um, I, again, my name is Evan Skelton. I am one of the pastors here. And every week you can expect that we will give a good portion of our service to opening up God's word together, opening up the Bible and trying to see what it already says. My job really is to, uh, we call it uh, expositional preaching, which is a fancy way of saying to expose the meaning of God's word to one another, to, to you. Uh, and so uh, today, again, we don't want to 
um, wow you with a bunch of unique wisdom that I or other leaders have to offer. We want to wow you with God's wisdom. We know that that's where the source of transformation really is found, particularly as we think long and fervently upon how that word points to Jesus Christ and what was accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. But if you would, again, keep your Bibles open. We are going to be continuing in the book of Psalms. In this book, uh, we are walking chapter by chapter through uh, during our summers. And I've said this uh, prayer book, really, of Israel. Um, this, well, it's not really just the prayer book of Israel, but the prayer book of anyone who is desperate enough to trust God when the birds are chirping and the sun is shining, but also when you are stuck in the real muck of life. It is a prayer book at a variety, various different emotions and stages, a prayer book for all of us, a prayer book that gets us and has that, uh, uh, that helps us in talking to God and has helped uh, believers, uh, those who count themselves amongst God's people for generations. Um, but even that being said, um, I don't know that many of us have ever prayed like this in Psalm 21, or 22, I should say. I mean, if you've ever wondered, how do I talk to God about the circumstances that I'm facing? This is where God's people have psalmed, and God's people have gone, I'm sorry, to the book of Psalms, including this one, including Jesus, who seems to quote from and identify with the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. Jesus, it's as if his imagination has been so saturated in the language of this book, the book of Psalms, that they spontaneously come to his mind, even at the hour of his death. Which is one of the reasons why this psalm is so important to us, because this psalm was quoted by Jesus Christ as some of his final words. The psalms, in fact, seem to be the grid by which Jesus interpreted and faced every challenge he encountered. But again, if that's true, if the book of Psalms is, we're really listening to people of deep faith talk to God, does that include Psalm 22? It doesn't exactly sound like a psalm of trust, does it? Especially up front. It's strange to hear anyone talk to God like this. And we certainly can't imagine Jesus saying something like this. And yet he did. Quoting the very first, the very ugliest of these verses is some of the final words he spoke as he hung dying upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Needlepoint that on a pillow. It's hard for us to imagine anyone with any scrap of genuine faith saying something like this. And yet, I think this scream to the heavens that we're going to look at this morning and all that comes after it help us in many ways, not just to understand the nature of genuine faith, especially when you feel God forsaken, although it certainly does that, but more importantly, it does so by looking forward to Jesus himself and the darkest day that Jesus ever endured. And so as we go through this psalm, we're going to make explicit connections to references made in the psalm that are fulfilled in the, in the death of Jesus Christ. And it's not just me, after all, who thinks that this connects to Jesus. In fact, the gospel writers intentionally describe Jesus' death in terms of this psalm. As Tim Keller has put it, reading this psalm is in many ways like, sit, like standing on solid ground. I'm not, I'm sorry, standing on holy ground. 
Which means that when we're reading this psalm, we are getting a look into the very heart of Jesus himself in the self-described horror and agony he endured, but more importantly, the very reason that he endured it. In fact, this psalm, I think we find that the scream to the heavens is a prayer of faith, which even more strangely is a cry of victory as well, especially when considered in light of the cross. And that's where where we're going to consider the psalm this morning. We're going to consider the psalm in three parts that build upon one another. First, this prayer of despair, which is actually a prayer of deep trust, and finally, a prayer of victory. But to get to that final piece, we need to start at the very beginning, the prayer of despair. And I want us to look at verse 1 and 2. I want us to read them together. I want want you to look at these in your Bibles as I read them for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I have to tell you, one of the uh, things I love about the Bible is it's so much different than the Hallmark Channel, which is sometimes what we expect from Christianity. We expect Christianity largely to give a bunch of cliche answers to the struggles of life, like the sun will come out tomorrow. But the more you read the Bible, on its actually you read some of the direct words of the Psalms, the more you're going to find how honest, how refreshingly honest the Bible is about the world that we actually have, what what it looks like, what it feels like to live in the world that we do. It asks questions of us. In fact, it asks questions of God that many of us don't feel we have the permission to ask. And it presents, in so doing, authentic faith for us, which is what this is. And sometimes we find that authentic faith is mixed with a great measure of doubt. This describes the psalm, uh, a man who has not only lost everything, been abandoned by everyone, but at the moment of his greatest need meets with the silence of heaven itself, who seems to have been abandoned by God. And just a brief reading of the circumstances, and we'll see that it doesn't seem like he's exaggerating. I mean, look at some of the images that David uses here. He's very creative in how he describes his enemies, as you'll often find in the Bible. And he uses three of them here. Of uh, bulls ready to trample, lions ready to rip him open, and of scavenging dogs looking looking for blood. Okay, so when you hear the dogs in here, don't think like, like your pet rover, okay? So we're talking about dogs that would wander the streets, that would be unclean, that would often feast on dead bodies, not things that you're going to be inviting to the supper table, okay? Scavenging dogs, lions, and bulls that are snarling, snorting, again, looking for blood. Perhaps the ugliest description, though, of all of these is found in verse 6. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Now, when you first read that, this can seem like a guy who is pretty hard on himself, like he's a bit more more like an Eeyore, like, nobody likes me. Well, it's like, it's this, we we figure almost like this, uh, he's saying that almost at our our moments of self-pity. That's what he's speaking out of. 
that nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Makes sense, doesn't it? Right? As if somebody who already has this inner sense of loathing himself. But that's not what David is talking about. He's not talking about this inner self-pity. He's speaking of what it feels like to be not just openly opposed, but to be despised by those he loves. You see, this line uh, in verse 6, it reminds me of a little bit of, uh, Grace and I have talked about this, um, and I've worked with junior high students, but as we see even our kids grow up, have you ever noticed how cruel kids can be to one another? Um, and now, I, I, I remember, not to make you feel sorry for me, but what it was like when I was in, uh, in school to be periods of my life where I was the butt of every joke. Um, I, I, maybe you've been there, maybe you were the person dealing it out, okay, so you and me should talk and we can reconcile because I'm carrying a bit of those wounds, I think. So nonetheless, this, we, we, uh, um, we know that it's not just kids, though, that do this, right? We, just, we find that adults often are just better at hiding it. Adults can be just as ruthless. I mean, think about how cruel our culture can be to one another right now. Whenever I think about a, a public figure or an athlete, when they fail and somebody who is once celebrated overnight can become just a trending meme. Think about how relentless and savage the trolling can get on social media. Just think of some of the people that everyone can get away with mocking today. That's a bit of what's going on here, but it's actually far more personal than that. The image uh, reminds me of, I mean, just think about that image of a worm. So not to get too gross and graphic, but you ever gone out to tra- the trash on a day like we had on Friday? A day where this, it's been sitting out for a while, maybe you threw away some hamburger meat, and you open it up and you see, you see it infested with maggots? Makes me feel sick, doesn't it? Just even like think about that makes me like, like throw up. But nonetheless, uh, the, that image of disgust, of like that inner like gut, like re, that, uh, that vomit reflex that's going on. I'm sorry, I won't describe this any further. But nonetheless, that's what David says he feels like right now. But only he feels like the worm. That disgust you would have over a maggot infested in meat is what David himself feels like in the eyes of those he once loved. In fact, this form of despising and disgust that you hear read about, really, that kind of disgust only comes from the most personal relationships. It comes from those you've disappointed, those who you've failed, who are sick of you, who just want you to fail. This is the description here. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this, But you have to ask, where does this kind of brutality come from? Why do human beings do this so often to one another? Why does it take so little for us to turn on someone in our culture or in our inner circle? Why do we, even just beyond this, seem to enjoy it when someone trips up? Why do we seem to enjoy it when somebody makes a mess of their lives? Why is it that people seem to derive so much pleasure from getting the dirt on someone else? Not getting too personal, but why is it that something in me is, seems to root for others to fail? You ever experienced emotions like this? Where does that come from? You know, it's interesting, not to get too nerdy, but in German, there is a word for this that I wish we had in English. I'm going to venture at the pronunciation of this, but it's uh, um, Schadenfreude, Freude, Schadenfreude, regardless, you can correct me if you know German, but regardless, here's the point. 
This, ver- this word means literally something like harm joy. That's literally what it means, harm joy. Here's what it's getting at. It was originally coined um, in the 19th century to describe uh, young men who seemed to get a sick sense of pleasure from tormenting stray cats. Not a funny image, right? <laughs> so regardless, this harm joy. Why is it that we seem to get joy out of seeing someone else's harm, someone else's failure, someone else trip up? It's still used today to refer to the ugly interest we have in someone else's setbacks, especially dramatic failures and humiliation. There is something within human beings that likes watching, getting joy from someone else's harm. You know, researchers all around the world have actually noticed this. They've noticed it not just in children, but in adults, although again, adults are better at hiding it. That is before, you know, social media was invented. (laughs) You have to wonder again, where does that ugly desire come from? You know, where does it, the desire to see another fall, even enjoy it, to stare at it and gloat over it, as verse 17 says. That's what he's experiencing. Researchers point out that there are a variety of different reasons behind it, but it's interesting how many of these reasons actually show up in our passage. It could be because uh, someone's failure makes me look better by comparison, or because their failure gives me a certain kind of advantage, that there's something in their embarrassment that gives me an opportunity to something I want, or because that it shows my particular group was on the right side of history, because I've identified them on the wrong side. How common is that today? Or because still their failure proves what I've already assumed, that they are on God's wrong side, that God is getting vengeance upon them, that justice has finally been done. It's interesting. Notice how each of these ideas show up in the passage but more importantly, how they show up in Jesus' own crucifixion, which is where this passage ultimately points to, as I've already mentioned. Just think about how much of this was literally fulfilled in Jesus' death. Some of the language here, we don't have time to go line by line, but Matthew's gospel in chapter 27 uses some of these exact words, not just of how Jesus was killed in the most horrendous way possible, but to describe these sick pleasure people had in crucifying him in the way that he was. That those who killed him seemed to enjoy it. Placing a crown of thorns upon his head, a robe around his shoulders, a reed in his right hand, the Romans enjoyed tormenting him, mocking this failed king, just as the Pharisees watched on, feeling vindicated in their self, in their smug self-righteousness, feeling proven that God was on their team and not his. You think about the um, opportunity, again, that uh, harm joy sees in someone else's failure that you see in Christ's own, right? The quote here, the most direct example we have of this is of the gambling of a dying man's clothes. Seeing opportunity in even the death of Jesus Christ. Surely, again, for these Romans or Pharisees, his death had proven that they were on the right side. How could God be for someone like that? This is harm joy at its worst. And seeing it in my own heart, I have to, I have to identify with those who killed him. Listen to the description starting in verse 14 as well. 
Doesn't this sound like the state of Jesus as he slowly bled and suffocated on the cross? Let me read these verses for us. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I want to pause there for a second. Doesn't this sound like what it felt like for Christ to hang upon his cross? A man facing fatal dehydration, his frame exposed and stripped for all to see, his hands and feet pierced, the crowds literally, using this words, wagging their head in shame at him. And, you know, David, he faced some terrible things, but reading this, it just seems too extreme to refer to anything that he experienced himself. The whole thing reads not just like opposition, but like an execution. Still, the real issue for David isn't just the physical suffering, is it? Just as the real horror and cost of the crucifixion wasn't just physical. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen, but we'll just kind of do a show of hands. Have you ever seen Passion of the Christ? Okay, it's now kind of old, but the uh, Passion of the Christ, a one of the most um, scientifically accurate, it seems, uh, depictions, historically accurate depictions of the crucifixion of Christ. They've taken some liberties, obviously, um, but nonetheless, it, what the, the weight of that movie, I remember seeing it uh, for the very first time. I, like, I, couldn't, I felt like I couldn't breathe afterwards. I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone. I sat, it was one of the few movies I sat through the entire credits in silence, but here's the thing about a movie like that in seeing what a crucifixion would have meant is that is only a tip of the iceberg because the, tr the true horror of the crucifixion isn't the physical suffering as immense and as terrible as it would have been to really be stripped bare, to be, to be uh, whipped, to have flesh torn from your back, to be then hung by, and the, uh, by uh, staples through your, uh, your own wrists and feet on, a, on rough wood in which you would literally have to push yourself up to take another breath. You would usually die of suffocation or heart failure, not of blood loss. I mean, the Romans were experts at making a gruesome, uh, excruciating death. In fact, that word excruciating comes from the same word for cross. But all of this is the physical side of it, not the spiritual side of it. The real horror is where is God in the midst of this? Verse 2 tells us David has been crying day and night. I mean, ha have you ever been there? And now he is at his literal end, physically and spiritually. Just look again at the language of verse 14 and 15. He's poured out, he's dried up, his heart has melted like wax, his strength is like a broken piece of pottery that would be used for just scraping up dust, like a dustpan. And worst of all, you read the end that I did not read in verse 15. Why is all this taking place? It says, you lay me in the dust of death. Who? Seems to say God himself. And he screams to the heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though you may have never said something like this, I know some in this room have experienced something like this. Maybe even now you are. 
some of our heroes of the faith, for those who are Christians, experience moments like this, including C.S. Lewis. It's interesting, he wrote two books on suffering, one called The um, Problem of Pain, which is a rather intellectual treatment about how do we make sense of suffering. He wrote that, it's a very good book, I'd recommend it, but then he wrote another book when he experienced unexplained suffering called A Grief Observed, when he grieved the death of his wife. Originally, from what I understand, he was hesitant to even put his own name to this book because of how raw and authentic it is about his grief. Here's what he says. Where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms he's describing in his grief. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might as well be an empty house. Was it even inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What, what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Lewis, C.S. Lewis, described what David experienced as the emphatic silence of God. It, it's as if God had forgotten him, cut him off. And there is no greater despair than being at the end of yourself and then to feel like God himself has deserted you. Now, I realize some will point out here that David only experienced what it felt like to be forsaken. He wasn't actually finally forsaken it's just his experience after all it doesn't take long for the psalm to take a very positive turn perhaps this is all that jesus experienced as well he only felt forsaken but when jesus screams out in this psalm we have to notice that he does not quote the whole thing some of the elements of this psalm will only be declared after his resurrection unlike david Jesus didn't just feel abandoned in some mysterious sense. He was abandoned by his Father. Now, what, now, the mechanics of how this all works, how the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one of our central Christian doctrines about how the persons of the Trinity, fully God, all each of them, all, okay, so three persons, one essence, and how, they, how one of their members could experience estrangement or division when they had been joined in love for all of eternity. The mechanics of, of this are mysterious. D.A. Carson points out, if we ask on what ontological sense, in what ontological sense, the Father and the Son here are divided, the answer must be that we do not know because we are not told. That's refreshingly honest, but that still, it's we have to say in some mysterious sense, some have linked this with purely the human nature of Christ, that Christ was forsaken as a human, but the divine nature wasn't broken. Again, the Bible doesn't give us that kind of specificity. I realize that's not satisfying for some of the theologians in the room, but embracing the mystery of this turns out to be 
immensely important to the significance of the cross itself. We'll come back to this, but one of the implications for this is that there is no suffering Jesus himself does not understand. He has experienced not just every type of suffering we have, whether it was rejection or betrayal, poverty and abuse, disappointment or despair, bereavement, torture, or even death, he has experienced all of these things in an infinite way. After all, there is no greater pain than the loss of a love relationship, I think we would say. Imagine the loss of an infinite, eternal love relationship. It would be unbearable in an infinite way. It's no wonder that Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is able to sympathize sympathize with our weakness. Like many of the Psalms, Psalm 22 assumes not just that we will, all of us, suffer. As uh, Prince Wesley says in Princess Bride, life is pain, highness, life is pain. But that there are times of suffering that will be absolutely more than you can bear. There will be times of suffering that have no apparent explanation, and even God will have seemed to forsake you. As Martin Luther put it, if God in Christ did not avoid this kind of suffering, why should we be surprised when we feel darkness and pain? And yet our despair, even as we cry out with the same kind of desperate honesty that this psalm gets at, we don't ever need to fear God stiff-arming us or sneering at us. Even when no one else gets what it's like to feel the way we do, Jesus has quite literally been there. But then, Jesus' David's prayer of despair, as much as we can understand it, is also so much different than our experience for it reveals some of the most genuine trust imaginable, which is where we're going to look next. This prayer of despair is in many ways very unlike us because it reveals a prayer of trust, a prayer of deep trust. After all, we need to ask, why doesn't David act like we do in our own sufferings and sorrows? Why doesn't he get vindictive, looking for a way to get even? Why doesn't he get bitter, Resolve that it's always going to get this way. Why doesn't he he get so self-focused as we so often do, like we might in the same circumstances? Why doesn't he do what Job's wife told him to do, a man who also lost everything and asked some very desperate and honest questions to heaven? Why doesn't he do, like Job's wife said, and curse God and die? Okay, don't give anybody that counsel if they're suffering around you. I'm just going to tell you. Not that helpful. But why doesn't he do it? In fact, notice how frequently David alternates between admitting his despair in some raw and rather uncomfortable ways, and yet in the midst expresses deep trust, a trust he says he is now being mocked for. Look at verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You know, suffering has a way of revealing our deepest assumptions about God, especially how he relates to the evil that we face. 
You know, everybody actually faces a problem that is famously put to Christians called the problem of evil. You can hear this articulated a variety of different ways, but here's the problem, I guess, to summarize. If God is all-powerful and he is all-good, then why is it that God allows some of the things that he does? If God is all-powerful and he is all-good, then why does God allow some of the things that he does? See, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, is not, though, just something that Christians have to address. When suffering happens, when pain happens, it actually reveals, even for very secular people, it reveals um, some, some opinions, some solutions that they may have never articulated in public, but nonetheless deeply hold ways that they make sense of their suffering. They endure, they cope with it, because all of us are forced to cope with it in certain ways. Again, Christians aren't the only one to face the problem of evil. All of us face things that don't seem to have an explanation, evil, atrocious things, and forced to make sense of it. And I find, generally speaking, that there are two solutions that are often offered, both of which I think are assumed in verse 8. You can read verse 8 in two different ways, I think. First is that suffering is merited. Suffering is merited. Now, there are various ways that this is framed, but it basically is the assumption that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. That seems to be what David's enemies have assumed, that if David is suffering this way, the only reasonable explanation is he must deserve it. He may say that he trusts God, but the only conclusion is, is he must actually be a hypocrite. Because God would never let something like this happen to someone who was in the right. He must very, very much be in the wrong. Unfortunately, I've seen this kind of attitude often come out of religious people who have no category for innocent suffering, who go on a sin hunt whenever a natural disaster is reported in the headlines or someone else's life falls apart. They go looking for what must they have done wrong. Or I've heard this assumption from those who wonder to themselves in the midst of pain what they could have done to deserve something like this. Still further, I hear it when someone feels they are owed a different life than the one they have. Someone who's bitter at God, feeling, doesn't he realize what I've done for him? Why in the world has he taken that from me? Many of us, at least, a fun- at least functionally, assume that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good ones, that suffering is merited. There's a second way to read verse 8, actually, and that is popular particularly among those who might consider themselves secular, that the, that the suffering is meaningless. Again, this is framed a variety of ways, but the solution is less about what suffering reveals about the sufferer than what it reveals about God. In other words, you could read verse 8 as saying, You may say that your God is good, but look at what is happening to you. Clearly, God either does not care or he is not there. Sometimes seen as particularly brave and honest to admit that the world has no purpose, that the universe has no meaning, that it is simply heading towards catastrophic heat death in which human beings merely dust on this blue speck in the giant emptiness of the universe will amount to nothing. That either God is there or he does not care. I mean, sorry, is not there or does not care. As Shakespeare puts it in Macbeth, life 
is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Isn't this really encouraging this morning? Do you feel really encouraged? This view sees any religious confidence about the future as ignorant at best or arrogant at worst. And like David's enemies, it openly mocks those who hold on to some sort of religious comfort as, uh, as, a, as blind trust. Life happens, and life is pain. All you can do is make the most of it, find ways to cope, to distract yourself from the ugly reality, and avoid whatever suffering you can along the way. These two solutions, suffering is merited and suffering is meaningless, are very popular. But as popular as these solutions are, I think neither ends up being that satisfying. I think in the midst of our own suffering, they do terrible things to us when we assume them. You see, when we cope with suffering in those ways, it makes us terribly self-focused. It makes us unable to see anyone else around us who might be suffering too, to always compare ourselves and saying, well, they have no idea what it actually is like to be me. It makes it also impossible for us to celebrate anything with others. Anytime there's a joy, it feels like a threat to me. It's something I, I have to distance myself from, resent them for. But then suffering also becomes, it also makes us um, not just self-focused, but bitter. Bitter towards the people who hurt us. Finding that the same circumstances play over and over and over in our minds, sometimes for decades. Sometimes then turning us bitter not just to the person, but to the world in general, and then to God himself. They also make us, this kind of, these kind of solutions make us then vindictive, to feel like our only solution is to get even, to make them pay. To, sometimes it's not even just a specific individual, just to make the world pay, to make others hurt the way that I hurt too. And yet, notice how we see none of this in David. Instead, in the midst of his despair, you see deep trust. And the very first thing that he comments on in verse 3, it just takes two verses of a God, my, of the verses, my God, my God, why has, have you forsaken me? To get to, to verse 3, where it says, uh, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Isn't it interesting that the first thing that comes to David's mind about God in the midst of his sorrows and confusion isn't the compassion of God or the faithfulness of God, but that God is holy. Why is this such a comfort? Here's what this means. What this means is that David, even as he is threatened and confused, he knows that God is not. He knows that God transcends his circumstance, that God isn't somehow spiraling too. He hasn't left his throne. And through his character, um, uh, sorry, and though his character and purposes may be hidden from my immediate grasp, even as he may have apparently uh, seemed to have abandoned David, David knows that this God is still worthy of worship. He remains the same God who was faithful to his fathers, which he reminds himself of, even if he can't see that faithfulness right now. He also remains confident that God is his help. Notice that he calls God, even in the midst of his despair, my God. He even refers to him as my help. These are tender terms used for God himself, even as he trusts God as a father. Did you notice the image here where he compares God's love to a mother? Now, please don't go say that I'm 
There's, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is not God the Mother, okay? But nonetheless, the image here, he's comparing himself to the best about our fathers, the best of our mothers, and what he says here, he compares himself to, compares God's love to a mother on whom he has depended, like a newborn that is cast immediately to his mother's breast. I've gotten to witness the birth of our four children, and that's one of the most important, one of the things that Grace, it's interesting. So she's given birth to our uh, kids uh, naturally, which is, I think is like crazy awesome, um, and I like, she like tried to break my hand several times in the midst of all this, but it's even in the delirium of all of this, as soon as it's done, the first thing that she's asking for is, give me the baby, give me the baby, give me the baby. And wants the baby on her as quick as possible. That natural mother's impulse. That was, that's something here that is the image here. That we've been cast upon God from the moment of our birth. We have always depended upon him whether we recognized it or not. And although David is recognizing it. He's saying, I have always depended on you. Where else would I go? It's the kind of trust that Jesus demonstrated actually on the cross. And like David... This was the trust that Jesus was mocked for. Notice how similar these words, the words in verse 8, are to the description of the crucifixion in Matthew 27. Can we put those on the screen? He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Here's what they're saying. It's as if they're saying, well, clearly, he doesn't either, he doesn't really trust God, or his God cannot be trusted. It's no wonder seeing what Jesus is suffering and hearing what he cries. How could it be any other way? But the irony is, they are incorrect on both counts. When they say either David does, I mean, sorry, Jesus does not trust God, or his God cannot be trusted, they are incorrect on both counts. First, Jesus' cry of despair, despair is actually a prayer of trust. You see, it still confesses his desperate dependence upon God even as he feels abandoned. As D.A. Carson puts it, trusting God and being abandoned are not mutually exclusive, not in David's experience and not in Jesus' experience. No, in fact, the one here who cries out in despair, trusts God. And friends, sometimes your cry of despair is a cry of deep faith. It's sometimes, it's all, it's, it's as if it's the only thing you can do to preserve your faith, to hold on to your God, to say, God, where are you? I need you. I depend upon you. I have nothing. I have no life, no salvation, apart from what you would give. That kind of, that kind of desperate prayer is actually a confession of deep faith. You know what's not? saying, God, I figured, you don't really care. I'm going to have to go fix my own, I'm going to have to fix this on my, on my own like I always have to do. That is, that is the opposite of what's described here. This is a, a cry of desperation, knowing God is the only salvation. And if Jesus, the question, though, is if he demonstrates really this kind of trust, and if all he deserves is the love of God, which his life reveals— then why is, day, why is Jesus forsaken? Is it because God is somehow other than he has revealed himself? Is it now we finally get God's true colors, that when it comes down to it, he is either cold and indifferent or powerless to help? I think you're not surprised to hear me say an emphatic no. But the second irony here is that the abandonment 
Jesus experienced, I think, shows that God can be trusted. Why? It has to do with our third point, a prayer of victory. You see, as hard as this psalm is, did you notice the shift that takes place in verse 21? It's where David shifts from asking for salvation to celebrating it, saying very directly, you have rescued me. I mean, talk about a gear shift. Not, a, not just his salvation, it seems, as he's describing it, but notice how then this salvation seems to expound those, expand those boundaries. It seems to ripple outward in some extreme ways, offering comfort not just to David, but to anyone who would be afflicted, not just his fellow Israelites, but it's as if this, uh, this salvation that is good news to him and those around him who share in his affliction, saying, I know what it feels like, I know what it feels like to be him, but it would actually go to all peoples. Do you notice the language here? It goes to all nations. It's as if all families in the earth through this, on the other side of this, would know an answer to their affliction. They would experience a common salvation. It's as if this salvation paves the way for God to be worshipped, not just by David, but in all nations, by all generations, whether by the rich and arrogant, who which our passage calls the prosperous of the earth, literally the fat of the earth, or the poor and desperate, the ones the passage refers to as the ones who couldn't even keep themselves alive. Anyone, in other words, anyone, whether rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, whatever, uh, whatever nation you were born to, whatever time period of human history you were born into, whatever background you come from, anyone who would remember and turn to the Lord in trust and worship will eat and be satisfied at the Lord's feast. Verse 26, as it puts it, that their hearts might live forever. If you thought the first 20 verses about the suffering and sorrow of David were extreme, they're nothing compared to this. Why does this radical honesty seem to give way to radical confidence? Is this a, the, uh, as if a, like a Disney movie? You know, it's just we couldn't end with drama, so we have to end with the heroes going off into the sunset and they lived happily ever after. Is this a way to make us feel better about what's come? I don't actually think so. I think this radical confidence assumes, again, why does this radical honesty give way to such radical confidence? Because I think this passage assumes you don't get one without the other. In fact, many commentators have point, pointed out the very strange lack in this passage of cries for justice. Do you notice that? Probably not because we tend to get offended by the passages that are all about justice, but notice how commonly it comes up in the Psalms, how often those who hope in the Lord's coming, his victory, his salvation, would also call out for the defeat of his enemies. And you don't see any of that here. No cries for vengeance. That doesn't stand out to us, but it was certainly stood out to the original readers and singers of this. No cries for the vengeance against the dog, the lion, the bull. Why not? Well, it says, Tim Keller points out, it's as if this punishment were a punishment, though not deserved, that must be submitted to. Here's what he's saying. It's as if the one writing this, even in the suffering he is facing, understands, even as he doesn't deserve it, understands that the sorrows he faces must be faced. They must be endured. They must be borne. It's as if the innocent suffering 
in the first 20 verses serves a greater purpose than simply showing a God who understands and cares. It's as if the one who felt forsaken by God did so so that we would never be forsaken by God ourselves. It's as if he was forsaken in our place. Listen to how another Old Testament passage describes uh, uh, the death of God's suffering servant, a passage that looks forward to the death of Jesus Christ. And, think, and if you think I'm being too extreme, going beyond the bounds of this passage, notice Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice in the first verses, if you want to go to verse 4, the same mockery, the same harm joy of God's servant, but this time it's put in our mouths. We despised God's suffering servant, it says. We even concluded that God himself had rejected him. And yet, his deadly wounds that he suffered were not just the wounds that we had dealt out to him, but the wounds we deserved. In his suffering, even in his death, he was carrying our griefs and sorrows, abandoned and crushed by God himself, who, as our passage puts it, laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we see in the cross in other words, it's not just the severe cost of sin, the final loneliness, despair, and suffering of death, but also the great love of God who bears that cost in our place. Jesus became a curse for us, became sin for us, the New Testament says. Jesus died for us, though he deserved only life and peace, so that our hearts might only know life and peace forever. The cross is how all of our sorrow and anguish give way to final joy and worship. It is the final assurance that God has not despised or abhorred our affliction, as David hopes in. In fact, he is, he is not only shared in that affliction, he has undone it. In the cross, evil is finally made to work against itself. When Jesus rose from the grave three days later, he assured all of this wasn't a pipe dream or a lost cause. The check cleared. As our passage says, he has done it. Notice how similar these words are to Jesus's final words. It is finished, friends. What does this mean? That the salvation Jesus set out to accomplish was accomplished. It was finished through the cross, through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection, the prayer of despair is not only a prayer of faith, it is the prayer of victory. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that because of the death of Jesus, that God has now highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Friends, the offer of life in Jesus' kingdom, including the complete forgiveness of your sins and the final reversal of your suffering, is available to anyone who would remember and turn to the Lord in faith, casting themselves, throwing themselves upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, the only one who is worthy of worship and the only one we will finally be worshiping the only one who could accomplish all of this, who would soon bring about a world where death itself has died. In the words of the poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and I want to put these on the screen. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. It turns out Browning actually wrote these lines in memory of another British poet, William Cowper, written in a poem called Cowper's Grave another famous poet who famously suffered several rounds of, sui of suicidal depression. In this poem, she offers the comfort that Jesus cried, my God, I am forsaken, so that for all of eternity, William Cowper would not have to. That of the lost, no son should use these words of desolation. And friend, you might have that same comfort if you rest upon him. I have to tell you, when you wake up to this fact, not only will you have profound honesty with God, as well as profound hope in your suffering, even when you feel God forsaken, even as you cry out to God, you might actually find new purpose within your suffering. If God, after all, used the most terrible day in human history to accomplish your salvation, how might he use your suffering, your depression, your cancer, your arthritis, the death of a child for someone else's good. That is not to call these things good in the slightest. Without calling it good, I need to say you may never know what good God may still work from it for the one who casts himself upon him in desperate dependence and faith. Not least of which is the comfort that you might be able to provide others when they face their darkest day too. Only our God could make evil to work against itself. And when you make, when you wake up to this reality, you will also give yourself to the same thing David did, to making sure another generation knows this good news that passes it on to a people yet unborn. Isn't this the hope of the psalmist? That the Lord's salvation might be told again and again and again. Isn't it, if you are a Christian, the very reason that you sit here? Might God continue to build his church in these ways, a church built upon the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ? As, Je as Paul himself said, I have resolved to know nothing save Christ and him crucified. Friends, this is why. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you as those who want to know what has happened, what has occurred in the cross of Jesus, and we understand so very little of it, and we need your help. Wake us up to it that we might walk in freedom and joy in life, that we might live like a people redeemed from sin and pass that good news of an answer to our affliction to those who are in their moments of despair. 
even for those who are facing their deepest despair, their darkness right now, who wonder, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? Would they take comfort in the cross? Knowing that because Jesus was, they never will be. They will only know life and peace forever, finally, and final vindication to their sufferings and sorrows. Well, it doesn't dry their tears immediately. It will one day dry them and forever. We know all these things. We're assured of these things because of not just the crucified Savior, but the risen and reigning one who will return. And it's for his glorious sake that we pray. Amen.